Welcome back to our series of Future Farm Resilience podcasts hosted by NIAB, working in conjunction with AKC and Savills. I'm Will Vaughan France, your host, and today I'm going to be talking to one of our colleagues within NIAB, David Clark, who is a specialist in precision agriculture and uh, some of the spatial techniques. We're going to have a bit of a chat about data, a bit of a chat about precision farming, and, and how it might help us to actually improve decision making on farms. So, welcome, David. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Probably just as a way of kicking off a bit, could you just perhaps give us a run through for uh, listeners of uh, what sort of work you're actually doing, what your PhD is in and the wider work you're doing uh, within NIAB to um, give people a bit of an understanding? Yes, certainly. Um, So, yeah, I'm David Clark. I'm a soils and farming system specialist at NIAB and and primarily for NIAB help deliver some of our long term experiments at Morley. A lot of the work I do is based at Morley um, in conjunction with the foundation there. But I'm also doing a PhD with Cranfield University um, with NIAB and the British Geological Survey. And we're looking at how we can manage spatial variation better on farm. Uh, I come from a crop modelling background and we're just looking at whether crop modelling can um, help us understand uh, spatial variability and actually manage it alongside current precision ag techniques. So could you just explain a little bit what you mean by crop modelling there as well, just for, you know, because uh, for the the audience as being, you know, we're more at the operational side rather than the sort of academic side. So so what do you mean by that? Crop models are a sort of collection of uh, mathematical formulas that are they're me- mechanistic in their function. So we, they describe how plants grow in with their interactions to weather and soil and soil properties. They're not sort of linear regressions. They They work on a daily time step. Um, the ones I'm working with sort of model leaf air index, and then they'll take into account any sort of drought or nitrogen interactions with that. So if we can accurately describe a soil um, through measurements, we can parameterize that within the model. We can use historic weather data sets or even projections and see how the model suggests the plant will grow and interact with our management within that. So, for example, in a precision ag context, we could... Um, have four or five zones across the field that we know to be spatially different. Looking at our yield maps, we could soil sample them and parameterize those soils within the model. We can run nitrogen experiments for 20 years of weather data on those different soils and say this is what the optimal nitrogen rate is historically. Therefore, that soil has a natural limitation or that soil potentially could yield higher. And then we can adjust our management from that. This is all a bit sort of in the testing phase. We haven't got that on farm. We're trying to work and getting onto farm at Morley and seeing how well it does using real farm data, whether that's yield mapping, EC scans, protein sensors. I'm also doing some NIAB work. So we're looking at how EC and um, soil electric conductivity and yield maps, weather data can help explain spatial variability on farm, but then also validating how current precision ag technologies, whether it's looking at nitrogen or seed rates, um, interact with that and whether they actually lead us to a, a better management system. So a lot of this is quite interesting spatial. I mean, I was just thinking back that um, yield maps, I think the first ones go back to the late 80s, sort of 1988, 89 sort of time. Um, and uh, I mean, EC scanning's been around for quite a long time. I think that was sort of late 90s, probably with some of that, some of the variable rate technology, something like the, the RN sensor, I think we go back to the so the late night. So we're talking about some 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 of these technologies are, you know, actually quite well established. Yeah. Quite, but, but there seems to me a sort of challenge that I'm, maybe we haven't worked out how to actually get 
the value from a lot of these systems that we we really we really should so is that really sort of driving behind a lot of the work that you're doing then trying to actually turn these from sort of symptom maps telling you what's going on to decision making information i think if we look at the first sort of 10 20 years of precision ag as our data collection phase you know one yield map on its own although interesting may not be particularly useful because you know we had some pigeons come down on that part of the field or we had some rabbits attack that part of the field but when we have five ten years of wheat data for example over different seasons different weather patterns we can start to say well is that spatial variation consistent is it something we can manage consistently and the things like you know you, you mentioned the ec scanning you mentioned n testers and actually those things are really useful but actually if we have an ec scan 10 years ago for example great we can see that variation but is that variation consistently impacting productivity well we need 10 years of yield maps to make that decision so you're correct you know it, they were interesting and useful early on but actually over the last 10 15 years as farms have started to develop 10 years of yield maps and we can overlay weather data with that we can look at how that interacts with soil property map whether that's ec or whether it's targeted soil samples we can start to build a much better picture but also those data sets can help us validate other precision ag technology so for example we may have brought on an end sensor on farm and using that we could say well look look how our yield map has evened up or look at how you know we've reduced nitrogen over the last five years so they can help us validate what we're actually doing on farm and, and that's only become more recent as those data sets have got larger now there are issues with those data sets as we've done looking at how accurate they are and how we interpret them and they're big and they we have to calibrate them and, and one's in this piece of software one's in another so bringing them together is where a lot of the research has gone on sort of been recently you you raised something there that actually just sort of flagged straight in my mind, which is you um, talked about nitrogen rates and we've uh, and we've maybe evened a crop up. Is that actually desirable to even a crop up? And the reason I say this is that surely different parts of fields and different zones have different levels of potential. And to even something up is, I mean, the easiest way to even something up is to even it down. Um, so are we actually looking to even things up or are we looking to actually accelerate the performance and maximize the performance of every area of the field and actually harness variability to our benefit rather than trying to raise it? I suppose the, the answer depends on what the cause of that variation is. Yeah. I know we, we're using nitrogen as an example and nitrogen is nice and easy one because we spend quite a lot on nitrogen from environmental goals it's important and it's an easy example where we can make financial economic and environmental gains so it's, it's good one to work with but the principles apply to most PA technologies but if your limitation is nitrogen then obviously those lower areas that may just need more nitrogen and, and that nitrogen doesn't impact your nitrogen use efficiency then great with even the crop up. I get your point that and, and it's a, a limitation of some of these technologies is that a lot of them that only look at one factor they may not look at how a specific management technique interacts with say soil properties you know our, our end sensors or our, our canopy measurements can give us an idea of how the crop is performing without actually going and doing some soil sampling or tissue testing whatever it might be we we don't actually know why that's doing that and now if that's something that's irrespective of nitrogen uh, or irrespective of what we're trying to change then actually doing that change may not necessarily give us fantastic economic uh, improvements and actually it might give us environmental uh, issues yeah yeah exactly so that's not being said they're not very very 
uh, useful tools, but we need to go ground truth what we're recommending and what we're doing and saying, yes, that's definitely the right prescription for that area. It's probably a misconception that pre-A makes life easier. I think actually to really use them, they do need human input and we need to go and check what they're they're recommending and say, yes, I'm confident that that recommending is correct for that area. And, and yes, you know, over a number of seasons, that's definitely generated the response I want and I'm acceptable with. People have different possessions of risk. You know, they might be happy that, to reduce nitrogen on that area because it's always under yield performing. But also people might have, actually, I, I know that's a sandy bank. I'm not happy putting more nitrogen on that area because there's the risk that a lot of that will be leached. So, you know, there's, there's those sort of local ground truthing that needs to happen with all of these technologies, whether it's seed rate, whether it's nitrogen, whether it's precision cultivation, whatever you might be doing. Yeah, I mean, there's a certain amount of precision farming that it, as an op, as a farmer, you kind of understand because you actually do already, you know, Yeah. because it, particularly if you're the operator yourself and you and decision maker, you know where maybe you're going to need a bit more fertilizer or a bit less, you know where crop will often lodge. And there's a there's a high level of precision farming that many of us actually do without thinking about. And perhaps this is trying to bring it down to a perhaps a slightly more thorough, more detailed way of looking at perhaps some of the less visible variation. But then we come into an issue of resolution, don't we, as as well? And uh, as Equip's got to say, if, you know, 36 metre tram lines, 36 metre resolution maybe on sprayers and spreaders. At what point do we tr- are we in danger of trying to become too precise? Is there a sort of resolution that's ideal to work with? Or a practical oh, compromise? <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah, I suppose we're, you know, when we talk about precision ag, we talk about, we, we tend to think of the sensors and the, the, actually a large part of improving precision ag is is actually from the technology, you know, GPS guidance, the benefit that brings, avoiding the spray, the, the spread or spray overlaps, you know, we can precision drill wo- wide row crops, we can precision, you know, into row hoe. So actually those GPS technologies make implementing precision ag a lot easier. So, yes, we have a 36 metre boom, but we can do section control and, and bring that into different areas. Now, back to your original question, it it, it depends on the, sp- the size of the spatial variant. If you've got big, large zones where you've got a, you know, a, a sandy gravel bank, that's relatively is easy to manage. You know, you go somewhere in the Brex where you've got these, you know, sand waves through the field mm-hmm. at one, two metres. Well, actually, that might become a bit harder. And we are sort of limited by the resolution of some of our data, you know, as combine headers get larger, the resolution of our yield maps becomes smaller. So we we have actually less information on the spatial variation of yield than if we were using a six meter header compared to a nine meter header. Going back to the yield mapping point of view, you're limited if you if you're making decisions based off the variation in that, you're limited by the variation and the size of your your yield map. But that's always going to be 15. 20 meters squared, which is a, you know yeah. probably the way soil varies is is fine enough, and actually for our management decisions is going to be fine enough. And it's only really those areas where we see consistent large variation that these technologies are going to deliver large economic and environmental benefits. So, yes, there's there's a limited resolution, but actually where we've got these big areas is where we want the technology to work and 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 where it should be working i know will your farmer your variation across the farm do you see it as a manageable scale as in are you worried well, that I suppose i'm in a slightly different scenario to many in that um uh, if i look back at a map of the farm from the late 1800s i find that very few of the hedge lines have changed in that time and most of them were there for a reason so yeah. um, operating uh, we're operating in fields that average less than four hectares right um 
the level of variation. It's interesting we how much we get perhaps less variation as a result because actually we've got hedge lines marking where most of the variation was uh, was originally found. Um, so I'm probably not the best person to ask that one. Nonetheless, I mean things like yield maps are are very interesting. Uh, NDVI maps are interesting. They show variations. Um, some of those variations come down to things that are absolutely nothing to do with the soil properties. Um, you've mentioned rabbits already. That's one yeah. of the great benefits of having as many hedgerows as we have, aside from the enormous hedge cutting bill each year, is the uh, rabbit population <laughs> that it uh, suits. But um, you do sometimes see certainly fine changes in soil, fine change, and often down to how soil deals with very wet periods of weather. Yeah. Um, and and here, I think it's an interesting one with yield mapping and how it's flagging the effect of sort of climate resilience as well and weather resilience that um, flagging wet drought areas, flagging areas that can't cope with excessive rainfall, not always the same areas, but sometimes perhaps maybe that leads me on to something about, well, what is a yield map? And is it fair to describe it really as just a symptom map? Yes, I think it probably to a level it is on its own. You've, you've just got a measure of the variation. Now, before we go and look at any other technology, most farmers will then be able to put some context to that variation without we go and do any scanning. So yeah. it's a symptom map, but then we can also then make informed decisions off that. For example, you know that you've just described that area is wet and heavy or down the bottom of the slope. You go, well, actually, maybe I could do look at the drainage is drainage working is, is is there something we can do can we mold drain it if that's suitable so so yes it is but then you can make more informed decision then it's also I think yield maps are sort of the end point that they help us see if there's something we could do differently but then they also help us say well what could we do differently when we look at the other technology so um, if we had an electoral conductivity map which in theory, might be measuring variation in, in soil texture, say, across the farm. Well, really, we're only interested in managing that if it's having an impact on yield. So we can overlay the two and say, yeah, look, we, we know texture's changed here and our yield response has changed here. Therefore, we could do something different. Now, mm. let's add an end sensor to that. And we say, look, our soil map is showing this. Our end sensor is suggesting we do this. And our yield map suggesting we might get benefit from that. Well, then we can then use those yield maps in years two, three and four to say our change of management has had a positive or negative impact on yield. And we can then go do maybe some targeted sampling of soil to say, yes, it's, it's achieved what we wanted or targeted grain nitrogen measurements, for example. So, yes, it's a prescription map, but really it's it's I do see them as the sort of fundamental pillar to most of the other technology was trying to imply because what's the point of managing something if it's if it's not actually impacting us economically or environmentally well yeah sure i mean because why you need to have a motive behind doing something yes sure. and, and for most people that's going to be that it needs to improve the productivity and the economics of the business or the environmental aspects of the of, of the operation but with a yield map then it, it what was uh, Maybe what we're saying is actually you need to kind of sort out a lot of the basics first, because if your yield map is just showing you that some areas are low yielding and you know, well, that's because it's not drained or not drained very well or sitting wet. So, you know, or it's it was a rabbit eaten headland because you don't need a yield map maybe to tell you that. So no. perhaps that is that actually is it actually potentially more much more useful when you have a yield map where you've actually dealt with all of the obvious factors already? like and so the the drainage is good you've got rid of the obvious problems that you 
maybe don't need a map to tell you are there that you sense from walking around a field and then it's that sort of residual variation which could still be massive in a field which you can then start to enable you to start to understand the variation that isn't obvious yes <laughs> or is related to fixed parameters characteristics that you can do nothing about obviously you can't change a light soil into a heavy well you can but it it's very it involves a lot of lorries to do it uh, yeah and, and I, th- I suppose it, it it goes down to fundamentals that in, inherently areas are going to be limited by their certainly soil physical properties you know we, okay we've, we have that yield variation we've ruled out the obvious drainage factors well then your targeted soil sample can say well is it because of that lower yielding you know phosphorus is phosphate's an easy one is that those lower yielding areas if they've been low yielding for 10 years actually if we've done blanket phosphorus applications well we might have start to have indices three and four well our soil tests say okay well probably if that if we accept that that's always going to be lower yielding because it droughts out or whatever it might be maybe we probably don't need to put on our our full rate of tsb because it's it's fundamentally offtake is a lot lower so we then have some sort of diagnosis and some um which isn't necessarily related to yield but actually could give deliver us an, an economic and an environmental benefit and then with that soil test, we can look at the texture and say, all right, well, fundamentally, it's it's a sandy area. Certainly at Morley, we're in the east, you know, 600 mil of rain a year. On some parts of those soils, glacial till, we've got these sand and gravel banks. Every year is a drought year. So we, we know consistently that part is going to be performing differently to the other part. It varies year to year on the intensity of the rainfall. But we know that actually we maybe want to be doing something different. Now, I'm not necessarily that worried about how we get to what method, whether it's precision ag or soil sampling or targeted grain nutrient sampling allows us to make those decisions. There's, there's very different ways, but we can start to make those informed decisions based on what we know, um, whether it's nitrogen, whether it's phosphorus, whether it's seed rates. And, and even just playing around and testing does what if I didn't apply any NN, what's our zero nitrogen? What's the our back? Is it variation in background end levels or is it variation in um, yeah, whatever that might be, till accounts can help us identify differences. So yeah, I, I, a long, long answer to a short question, but you, I, I think they are symptom maps, but are very much um, sort of fundamental of identifying what we might want to do different. So you've obviously got all, potentially all sorts of challenges with actually data quality as well. So if you're somebody who's collecting data in spatial form, and it might not, not just be yield maps, but it could be all sorts of other maps as well. What do you need to do to make that data valuable and to make it useful? Can you take it at face value? It depends on how you're using it. If you just want to I, you know, identify, again, we, we, we're using your maps because they're an easy example, but it applies to EC, it applies to whatever you might be doing. If you just want to identify variation, then probably not a lot. You know. We're not that worried about the accuracy. Is that actually 10 tons a hectare? Is that actually seven? But you know, the variation is nine and twelve. Well, they'll they'll give us that picture just by printing them out and looking at them. So we can say they've got that variation. Now, if we wanted to do more complex things with that, um, some work we've done um with AHTB at Strategic Farm East is looking at how they can use to identify marginal land. So we want to ascertain a really high accurate economic value to that portion of land now we need to be very very confident that those yield maps are to a degree of accuracy now we were able to validate 200 over 250 yield maps with grain trailer way cell 
yield data and showed generally they're pretty good, but there is potential for large error. And across sort of 150 wheat yield maps, the error was around about 0.8 tonnes a hectare, which when you start to think about what we're being paid for some of the environmental schemes is, you know, quite a large, you know, when wheat was £300 a tonne a couple of years ago, that's quite a large economic error in the analysis. It's a large part of the profit as well, particularly, you know. So, So we need to be a bit careful how we use them in that sense. Now, that being said, because we had those grain trailer waste cells, we can we could apply some sort of correction to it. And a lot of the software that people might use might allow you to do that sort of post calibrate yield maps based on what you record. And I would encourage people to do that if they they want to use them to make those economic decisions. And then from a research point of view, you know, I'm finding that the errors could uh, sort of coming up, causing issues when I'm trying to validate a, a model, you know, before we use these models across farm we need to know that they're accurately representing what's going on within the soil and they can model the yield potential now if we can't measure the yield properly how am i knowing if the mod which model's performing best at recreating that yield so it, it they are you know the accuracy of them is is important to recognize as a limitation and do what we can to um, improve that you know the first thing is certainly just clean the data's up and a lot of the software that is available to farmers um, a lot of it free at use in terms of the point you can pay extras for different things, but you can upload yield maps um, regardless of what combine you've used to them. And, and they will do a good job of cleaning them from that same data set we mentioned. I think we we ended up having about 900,000 yield data points across the 10 years, and we ended up getting rid of about 20% of them because it was just nonsense. Not, not enough nonsense. When you're in the pressure of harvest, you, you've always got two or three swaths that aren't full so you need to get rid of them and 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 you're turning on the headlands a couple of times so we do have to get rid of them before we start to really have confidence in the actual value and if that's what we need we need to recognize that if that's not what we're interested in then great just look at them and and make informed interpretations from the spatial variation alone is fine but if you're using them for more informed decisions do, do do certainly use the tools available one of the ones you you mentioned earlier, and I've been sort of interested in this for a little while, it's something that's been available in the forage sector for a bit longer than the grain sector, which is NIR, near infrared spectrum, which looking at then grain characteristics, as it's been done with forage, um, so some, you know, yeah. har- uh, John Deere's Harvest Lab would be an example of it, and being done for slurry as well when uh, uh, spreading so you could control nutrient content being applied to land. But it strikes me a bit with... Um, that with yield maps, you're you're getting sort of one, particularly if you want to look at something like nitrogen, you're getting one dimension of a, a, of a of a result. There's another dimension in the result, which is obviously the protein content of grain. Um, so you've started to look a little bit at these some of these NIR systems and data. What have you learned from it so far? I suppose to start the fundamentals. You know, we know grain, nitrogen, grain protein has a strong indication of nitrogen uptake and, and we're actually looking at end response trials we know that generally there can be an optimum grain n and an optimum grain protein for economic n optimum so we can use it as a way of identifying whether we're closer or further away to our economic n optimum and it also allows us to calculate nitrogen use efficient we can calculate how much n is gone taken off with yield and that's what we do in our plot experiments now the nir sensors work similar in the sense of a yield map as they're fitted to the combine as the grain comes through into the combine it will give you a measure of grain protein or or grain nitrogen so 
with that yield data, we could start to create at spatial maps of nitrogen use efficiency, which will be really, really useful, particularly we have benchmarks, you know, RB209 suggests for feed wheat that 11% grain protein is optimum for yield. So if we have an area that's consistently 12, 13% grain protein in feed wheat, we can suggest, well, look, probably economic N is, or, or, you know, we're putting too much N on there, we can make those decisions. That being said, you, as you, you mentioned, that it's not widely used currently. I think John Deere have about 20 these harvest lab systems in, in, in play and there's some, uh, you know, you can get them retrofit to other combines. And at Morley, we have done that. We've, we've got one retrofit to a class combine and we're validating it under, you know, the, the technology is reasonably well validated in the literature and on experimental sites. What we want to know, like the yield maps, is how well do they perform when you've got 800 hectares to combine in one month in August and you only have six days of dry and, weather. And, and, you, and you've got it sitting on a machine that is inherently um, not a laboratory environment. Yeah. I mean, the concept of NIR has been the standard for grain measurement. Yes. It's, uh, and I guess for people listening perhaps aren't familiar, it's, it, it's a prediction of grain quality, isn't it? Because it, which is a key point, it's not actually a, it's not an analysis of grain, it's sort of a prediction of of it but every grain sample that goes into a lab it's an NIR piece of equipment the FOSS or the Perton equipment that's used in in grain labs so there's, yeah. there's, the science behind this is not particularly unusual or in many ways innovative it's the placing of it to create real-time data within spots in field but to me it has quite a few interesting potential one is to understand as you just mentioned nutrient use efficiency your nitrogen well because it might not be just nitrogen no. um, that you could sense with it but also to be able to if you're a milling wheat grower or malting barley grower that you can know very very quickly where you should be sending trailer loads of grain off the field whether they've made spec whether they should go into a shed for high for a high grade product or whether they need to go in a feed heap or somewhere in between the two and and actually that could be from a market point of view also really valuable but we might also learn from that things that we need to do to make crop quality more consistent for end uses um so more consistent grain proteins for wheat uh, more consistent barley nitrogen so as it's obviously it's two sides of the same coin yeah uh, protein and nitrogen but obviously we talk in different terms of the crops but um to act which might have a value to in the supply chain as well so these technologies it's more than necessarily just a refining our use of the input it, it could also be improving our crops yes and 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 likewise they're not the as these new precision ag technologies effectively what they are come online and on stream for want of a better word and onto farms they're not necessarily replacing older or, or current technologies they're actually probably just improving and getting more value out of the other technologies we already use we've mentioned the end sensor you can apply based on the end sensor currently and you can look at your yield maps and we've discussed the limitations of trying to even a field out but when we look at we have grain nitrogen content across that same spatial area well that's another piece of information to validate what we're doing with the end sensor or, or however we are making more informed nitrogen management decisions so it, it's improving our understanding of other technologies as well as as a new technology and we i suppose you know you mentioned electroconductivity has been around for a long time we've got other soil proximal sensing technologies around currently gamma ray spectrometry is coming on um available and, and even lidar elevation data that ea have, have produced those sort of things and, and um well actually together they can perform a much 
bigger or give us much more information than on their own ec works to quite a deep you know we're, we're picking yeah. up differences in in subsoil which we can't do a lot about whereas gamma tends to work in the top 0 30 centimeters so those two together might say well you know this is variation in a topsoil this is variation in, in subsoil now again we're fundamentally only really measuring one or two things from those so we then have to go and do some ground truthing with soil sampling nothing's probably ever going to replace getting out there with a spade or an auger and 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 figuring out what those differences are that we're picking up from these proximal sensors that that is the fundamental point you know i think because those sort of precision ag technologies aren't telling you know getting us to inform what a specific level is it's just telling us where we best to sample to get yeah. our accurate measurement but those two together are much more valuable than one or the other on its own and as we've discussed yield mapping end sensor maps and grain protein all together provide a much much bigger picture than any of those technologies on their own i'm going to ask is this is a probably a slightly woolly question or is this is probably not the simplest question to answer um one of the great things about making future predictions is luckily by the time you get if you set the time scale far enough out then by the time we get there nobody will quite remember what you said so um if i say to you then where do you think we'll be in five years time um but i'm sure we won't hold you to it <laughs> how do you think these technologies will be transforming what we do in five years time five years isn't that long <laughs> um <laughs> you can go for 10 if you'd prefer yeah, I, I suppose it, it's probably worth looking back, you know, in the last five years, I've only been in the industry sort of, you know, actually on the industry apart from outside of it for five or six years. And I've seen a change from how, you, you know, these certainly the software that's available farmers to look at all these data sets together that has progressed considerably over the last five years. And we've got various different companies pulling out their own probably all doing very similar things but really useful ways of integrating that is data sets now i would like to see the next five years of farms and researchers to then say right we've got these data sets together we can use ai we can use machine learning we can use targeted source armies. let's spend the next five years getting to a point to really understand how these data sets together can provide value so i i would like to see more testing of those um the, the the technologies we have and i i know will you you were involved in a niab survey looking at members and and, and yeah. the, i think 65 percent of yield uh, farmers were yield mapping or or 50 yeah. were using variable rate i can't remember 50 like, percent. i can't I believe. do that figures but yeah it was very high proportions we, but there were some quite but, interesting things in there there was a, a a number of people who were doing variable rate crop protection yeah really difficult to do yeah um, at the moment but, but it, it's something that's very desirable yeah and and potentially something as us as researchers are maybe not doing as much you know bearing in mind that 50 percent of people we work with are using variable rate technologies does it represent is it represented enough in what we do on farm and our research maybe not so actually i'd like to see a bit more ground truthing of these 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 uh, technologies that come along and, and really evidencing that they are helping us deliver economic now we know with SFI and pressures on net zero coming in, I think the next five years will also see us go from using these technologies purely an economic point of view to saying how can they be used to arrive at environmental optimal management strategies. You know, actually, this is the economic uh, optimum. This is the environmental optimum. You can then make informed decisions on where you want to fit within those two. 
and and they might not on some things actually end up being that far apart either. no uh, if we're using inputs really really well if we can drive efficiency of the use of inputs and reduce then that uh should be a net improvement to the environment of not losing these yeah. to water and leaching etc so um one of the the um things i've always been a bit concerned about with precision technologies is sometimes that they enable us to do things without knowing why we're doing them and so for example we've been able to vary rates of inputs since i think probably i mean the first example i can think of would have been massey ferguson's field star system in about 1995-96 um anybody who knows how old i am will know that there is no reason why i should be aware of that at all and i should have been doing much more interesting things at when what the age i was at at that point but anyway we've had a lot of things we've been able to do for a long time but i'm not sure we've necessarily known why we're doing them or we often might be thinking well, we must be doing the right thing but not actually being able to verify that the thing that seems to have changed for me now is that we've got the capacity now and more of the technology to allow us to actually work out whether we're doing the right thing or not and and um, do, you, do you think that's a fair assessment of where we are versus, say, where we were 10, 20 years ago with these things? Definitely. And I think we've certainly got probably more understanding on what the right thing is as well. You know, we we only have to look at the sort of interest soil health has got over the last 10 years and, and how we can measure that. You know, we can measure it biologically, biologically with, you know, various different lab tests, but counting earthworms or, you know, look at the AHDB scorecard that although those measures were there, they've now been put into a nice handy way that farmers can go out and measure their soil health. Now, over the next five, 10 years, hopefully, now we've got those sort of better understanding on how we can measure those things, we can use these PA technologies to go and then inform us and, and do those AHV scorecards on various different areas of the farm. Whereas when we didn't have one or the other, you know, together there. So yeah, hopefully the, these systems over the next five years will allow us bring in our generally our, our understanding on soil and crop productivity and will help us understand that and and then help us implement other technologies you mentioned can we prove the efficiency of them through those technologies and and, and the work is certainly accelerating exponentially when we look at robotics and and, and precision spraying and, and things like that so yes i think it will move quickly and it will move much quicker than it has done in the last 10 years as we have you know not just technologies but software and and, and, and yeah. ai and, and and machine learning particularly that will help us interpret these data sets we've been collecting david that's been brilliant i i've really enjoyed having this conversation i think we i know we could carry on for some time but we yes. probably ought to draw to a, um, a, a a close maybe there are some bits we should have a a sequel on there's obviously one big topic with data which about value and security of data we haven't talked about as well here which which is perhaps a, a topic for another time and, and would be an important one yeah. um let listening thank you very much for listening through for joining us we do have uh, some more podcasts planned at the moment we will be talking about uh, integrated uh, crop protection and uh, uh, with uh, Ifa O'Driscoll our um, uh, disease expert within NIAB. Uh, we have a podcast planned with Elizabeth Stockdale. So she's been chairing a number of them talking to people about carbon. It's going to have the tables turned and, we, and I'll do an interview with her talking about uh, regenerative agriculture uh, fairly soon as well. So so a little bit of variation in the different sort of topics we're uh, covering. And as ever, we look forward to uh, welcoming you to the next podcast. Thank you very much for listening and thank you, David, for joining us. Thank you.